uh, bless this time in the study of your word as we look and finish up look in the life of Gideon and Lord we know that you desire to say to us um, the same as you said to Gideon that you desire for us to be mighty men and women of valor to be used of you Lord so I pray that um, as we've seen Gideon a life that was committed to you and depended upon you but Lord also some important lessons that we're going to see tonight that we need to take heed to so, Lord, bless this time. Help us be attentive to the things you want to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Of course, as we look at the life of Gideon, Gideon, one of the judges of Israel here, this story of Gideon uh, in chapters 6 through 8 is action-packed, but also a lot of application to be made concerning the life of Gideon. And, of course, it was the Midianites that had come into Israel with their camels and the Amalekites and the people of the east, and they had taken over the land of Israel where the people had to, to hide in the mountains and they were hiding in the caves and in the trees. And there was Gideon. He was at the wine press threshing wheat because the Midianites with those camels coming in, the camels traveled fast. The camels were able to carry loads. So they come in and strip the land. They take the harvest. They were destroying the land. They were taking their homes. And so it, it meant great poverty for the children of Israel and it was all because they had forsaken the Lord and served those Baals, those, those false gods of the Canaanites. And one of the things that we've talked about going through this section of, of Judges, and we will continue to see, is that any time that we turn away from the Lord, we're going to be poor of spirit. We're going to be impoverished because we have turned away from the Lord. And so if we want to really be rich and strong and, and blessed, in the best sense of the word, it is a life that is dedicated, a life that is surrendered to the Lord. So here were the children of Israel. They're under bondage to the Midianites. Here is Gideon. He's hiding. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, you know, who am I? Uh, I'm the least of my family and least my family, the least in my clan. Uh, how are you going to use me, Lord, to lead the children of Israel against the mighty Midianites? And so the Lord would not only call him, but confirm that calling as we went through those chapters, chapter 6 and into chapter 7. And, and the Lord was using Gideon in a powerful way to where the Lord got the glory. And of course, chapter 7 is a a very wonderful story of Gideon's army, 300 men, how they would bring victory against 135,000 Midianites. And so it was the Lord that uh, when the uh, soldiers came as Gideon blew the trumpet and there were gathered the tribes of Natali and Asher and the Manasseh that came down. There was 32,000 men and they were going to do battle against 135,000 of the Midianites with their fast camels that were across the valley. And as they were at the foot of Mount Gilead, there at the brook Harad, it was the Lord that said, Gideon, you have too many men, and I don't want you to think that when you get the victory, it was all because of you. So I want you to say to the men that if you are afraid or frightened, you can go on home. So Gideon said that. He said, if you're afraid, you can go on home. And so 22,000 grabbed their bags and they went home. That left 10,000 left to get fight against the Midianites. And so it was the Lord that said, tell the men to go down to the brook and get a drink of water. And the ones that would cup their hands with the water 
were the ones that the Lord was going to use. And it was only 300 men that did that, so 9,700 ended up leaving. So here you have 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. The odds were 450 to 1. And as I mentioned to you last week, it was the same odds that Elijah faced when he issued that challenge there on Mount Carmel there in 1 Kings chapter 18. 450 prophets of Baal, and here is Elijah, that he would give that challenge, and you call upon your God, Baal, and let's see if he will send fire to consume the sacrifice. And of course, the 450 prophets of Baal did that to no prevail, but it was Elijah that said a simple prayer there on Mount Carmel, and fire came from heaven to consume the sacrifice and the wood of the sacrifice, and then those prophets were slewed down there in the valley. And so when we have God on our side, it doesn't matter how many come against us. And it was Joshua, you recall, as we went through that book, that Joshua was told when he went into battle and he was facing those iron chariots and horses and, and the, the kings that had banded together, the Canaanite kings, as, and their numbers were great and mighty. And the Lord said, don't worry about it, Joshua. I'm going to bring you victory. Don't be afraid. And when we have the Lord that is working on our behalf, that when he gives us the promises that the battle belongs to him and that he is our refuge and our strength and he's everything that we need. It doesn't matter what the odds are because we have the Lord that will give us victory. We already have victory, don't we? Because Jesus Christ went to the cross at Calvary for you and for me. So we have victory against the enemy, but we still do battle, don't we? And the Lord will be with us and he will strengthen us and guide us in those times of battle. So it was the 300 men of Gideon that went to war. And of course, it was the sword that was in one hand of those 300 men and a pitcher in the other. And as the sound of the trumpet was given, they would cry out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. They broke those pitchers and those pitchers had coals in them. And when the wind came in, it would ignite those pitchers and it was like a torch going off. And the Midianites, when they saw that happen, we know that they got very confused. They turned on each other. They began to kill each other. They began to run. And it was a mighty victory indeed that the children of Israel had. And so we left off at chapter 7 seeing that Gideon and his 300 men are beginning to pursue the remaining Midianites and the leaders of the Midianites. And we saw that it was um, the tribe of Ephraim that would uh, end up capturing and killing the princess, uh, princess of uh, Midian, that is Oreb and Zeb, and bring them back to Gideon. And that's where we left off, and that's where we pick up our text here at chapter 8. And now when the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. And so he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? In verse 3, so God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him subsided when he said that. So this is where we left off last time. Here is Ephraim. There's no record of them being called by Gideon. When Gideon blew the trumpet, what's recorded here is that it was Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh. They're the ones that came and responded to the call. But it doesn't say anything about Ephraim. And so the commentators are kind of divided on this. And the reason that they're divided in thinking, well, Ephraim, they heard the call, but they didn't respond. And the reason that some commentators suggest that the Ephraim didn't respond to the call of Gideon when he blew the trumpet was because 
when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see with Jephthah, when he blows the trumpet, that Ephraim didn't respond to the call. And Ephraim comes to Jephthah and says, why didn't you call us in this victory that you had in this battle that you're going to do? And so it was Jephthah that responded very harshly to them and said, I did call. I blew the trumpet. You guys didn't come. So some have suggested that perhaps Ephraim here didn't respond to the call of Gideon, but I didn't see any evidence that we read that they were called. There was messengers that we saw at the end of chapter 6 that were sent to, to Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh, but again, Ephraim isn't mentioned. So I have to assume that Ephraim wasn't called in this battle. So they come to Gideon now, and they say, Gideon, why didn't you call us in this battle that was taking place? And they're very upset with Gideon. And Gideon answers very graciously and very wisely to them. He doesn't answer harshly, but he says to them, listen, what you guys did was very important. He said that it's not, verse 2, the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebiasar, and God has delivered into your hands the princess of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. In other words, what you guys did was greater than what we've done in capturing these two princes and killing them, that your gleaning is greater than what my family has done or what we 300 men have done. And so he is telling them that you had a very important part in this victory that's been given to the children of Israel. And as we mentioned last week, and I just think it's worth reminding you and I that they did play an important part in this victory that God gave to them. And you and I, sometimes we can think, Lord, why don't you use me in this way? Why don't you use me in this battle? And the thing is, is that God has a plan for us. He desires to use us. And I want all of us to remember, in however God uses you, that is very, very important. You, Ephraim, had an important part that you played. And very fruitful and very necessary is what Gideon said to them. So very wisely, he's answering them in that helping them to realize that God used you as well and however God uses you. And that's why I think that it's important that we be reminded of these things as even we're talking about it on Sunday mornings, that as we talk about spiritual gifts that we have learned so far, that God desires to gift his children, those of us who are members of the body of Christ. And we saw that there's a diversity of gifts in verse 4 of chapter 12. There's differences of ministry, verse 5, and there's diversity of activities that take place within the body of Christ. The body of Christ made up of members, that's you and I, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's those different diversity of gifts that are listed in the New Testament. We've taken the last couple of weeks and gone over those gifts, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the word of prophecy, um, the, you know, discerning of spirits. Uh, there's healings and miracles and tongues, interpretation tongues. Those nine gifts listed there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. More gifts that are listed there in Romans chapter 12 is the gift of exhortation and mercy and helps and ministration and those gifts listed as well. And so God desires to gift us, given us different gifts so that the body may function. And that's what we're going to talk about as we finish chapter 12 on Sunday. And just as our physical bodies has different parts Paul uses the analogy that the body of Christ all has different members and comes together so that the body of Christ may function in a way that God desires for it to, for us to, to be 
edified and blessed and uplifted, uh, for us to be a testimony and a witness and a light to a lost world. And so you have opportunity to be a part of that. You are a part of that if you're a member of the body of Christ. And God desires to give you those gifts and call you to ministry, whatever that might mean. And you see, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, ministry is just somebody that's you, Pastor Jeff, up front, or somebody who's in the mission field full-time. I was talking to the kids on Sunday, the high school kids um, that uh, are going to be going on their mission trip here in just a little over a week. And by the way, parents, I was supposed to tell you that there is a meeting just to remind you after a second service so we can kind of wrap up details and getting the kids down to the airport and some other things. But they're going to get ready. And so I was talking to the kids on Sunday nights, and I said, you guys, you know, are going to be used of the Lord. You're going to be going on this, this mission trip. But don't think that it ends when you get back from New Orleans. That, again, one of the things that I've talked about, we just need to do it, that I'd like to get that... that on the front door is you're walking out above the door that says you're now entering into your mission field. God desires to use all of us. And in the way that he has called you and gifted you, so there's a diversity of gifts and there's differences of ministries. We're all called to different ministries. And in the body of Christ, there's all kinds of ministries that take place. Maybe you have the gift of helps. You know, maybe you can be one that the Lord puts on your heart to help out on Saturday, to minister to a family that has just experienced loss as we ministered um, on Saturday to Lois and Jean and the family there as we have the memorial service. Maybe God will call you and put on your heart to, you know, help with that and help with the reception. That's an important part of functioning in the body of Christ. So you, Ephraim, you played an important part. And don't ever think, folks, that, that whatever God has called you to do and placed you and the gift that he's given to you, and there's diversity of activities. In other words, you may have the gift of teaching, I have the gift of teaching, but not everybody's going to be called to be a senior pastor. He may use your gift of teaching to teach Sunday school or to teach a home fellowship or to teach a small group, whatever it might be. But the thing is that your ministry is just as significant as anybody else's ministry. Do you understand that? Because I think that in the body of Christ, there can be this, this hype and there can be this you know, celebrity mentality and, and everything's got to be seen and big and grand and all this. You know what? God sees what you do. And maybe you're one that you're thinking, right now what I do is what I'm committing, what the Lord's put on my heart is to pray. And what Paul's going to talk about is different parts that aren't seen, that they're very vital and very important. Don't think that they're not important. It's like the heart. The heart's not seen, is it? Our hearts are, are what you know, keeps us alive, that heart beating. It's, it's very, very significant. And you see, I think that those who commit themselves to prayer, praying for me and praying for the ministry and praying for you, they may not be seen, <laughs> but it's very vital for this ministry and very important. And Jesus said, great will be your reward as you pray and go into that secret place and pray. So here's Ephraim. They're understanding that the part that they had to play was very important, and the part that God has for you to play is very important. So here is the Ephraim. They get the princess of, of, uh, 
of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and now Gideon's going to go after the kings as he continues to pursue the Midianites, verse 4. And when Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted, but still in pursuit. So the area that they're in is mountainous. They're going over to the Jordan River. It's on foot. It's a lot of traveling, and uh, they're exhausted. And so verse 5, the men, uh, they said to the man of Succoth, Please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing, pursuing Zeba and Salmuna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Salmuna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? And so Gideon said in verse 7, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Salmuna into your hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. So here he comes to Succoth. He's on the other side of the Jordan River. His men are exhausted. He says, Give us some bread to eat. And these guys, the men of Succoth in that city, said, You know, are, are these two kings in your hand? Have you have victory? I don't see them here with you. Why should we give you bread? What if you don't have victory? Now, they are traitors of the children of Israel, the men of this city. They have allied with the Midianites. They're probably thinking there's still 15,000. If they know what has happened, there's still many of the Midianites that are out there. What we're going to see here in a few verses, that 120,000 were initially killed. There's still 15,000 that have fled along with the two kings of the Midianites. So the men of this city, they're, they're ridiculing you know, uh, Gideon and saying, you haven't had victory yet. Why should we side with you? Why should we give you bread? And so Gideon here says that when I come back with those two kings, there's going to be judgment, and I'm going to whip you guys with these briars, these thorns from the wilderness. And then verse 8, then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the man of Penuel answered him as the man of Succoth had answered, and so he also spoke to the man of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. So this isn't timid, scared Gideon anymore, is it? All of a sudden he says to Peniel, Hey, give us something to eat. They respond in the same way. Hey, you haven't had victory. And so he says, I'm going to tear down your tower when you come back. So you can see Gideon, just the confidence that he has that the Lord has given to him. He's going after complete victory here. And so verse 10, now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. So when they broke those clay pots, those 300 men, and they blew the trumpet and they yelled out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, those Midianites were very confused. They thought it wasn't just 300 men. They thought it's 300 companies. And they began to turn on themselves and, 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 and to kill themselves. And so great confusion that's called, uh, that was caused by the Lord. 120,000 of them fell. But there's still 15,000 of them out there with the two kings that are hiding out. And so verse 11, Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in the tents of the east of Noba and Jogbeha, and they attacked the army while the camp felt secure. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, they pursued them. And he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. So Gideon gets complete victory here against the enemy. 
and he routs the army. He captures the two kings of the Midianites. In verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Harris, and he caught a young man in the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and his elders, 77 men. So these guys are in trouble, aren't they? As he interrogates this young man, he says, all right, who are these guys that, you know, uh, were not willing to help us and ridiculing us. And so he writes down their names. And then verse 15, he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here at Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hands, that we should give bread to your weary men? And so he took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. So he did exactly what he said. He takes those briars and he whips them, and those guys, they got the point, so... Verse 18, and he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, I'm just saying if you're still with me, guys. What kind of man um, is, um, and then verse 17, let's back up there. And then he tore down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the city, just as he said he would. And then verse 18, he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. And then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And so here, as these two kings are, are captured, it was Gideon that spoke to them. And, and he said, you know, what about those men? What kind of men were they you killed at Tabor? And apparently they were Gideon's brothers, that these two kings were responsible in having Gideon's brothers killed. So Gideon says, they're the sons of my mother. They were my brothers that you killed. And so verse 20, he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us, for a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the camel's neck. Kind of interesting here. Here is Gideon. He captures these two kings. He does business with Sukkoth and Peniel. He does what uh, he said they would do. They were, again, traitors of, of Israel. They had sided with the Midianites um, there on the east side of the Jordan River. And then there is Gideon that, you know, calls these two kings saying that, you know what, you're responsible for my brother's death. And then he turned to his eldest son and he says, you pull the sword, and you deal with these guys. You kill them. And, and the youth, his oldest son, was not able to do it. It was just too much for him. Now, why would Gideon do that? Why would Gideon say to his son, you kill those two kings? I think that the reason that he did that was because if his son did that, man, that would be a great reputation for you, son. This is a great opportunity for you to become famous now, for you to, to, to have a great military career or whatever it might be. If you are known as killing the two kings of the Midianites who held us in bondage, man, this is really going to benefit you. I think that was Gideon's thought. But he was young. He wasn't able to do it. He wasn't mature enough to do it. And even the response in verse 21 of these two kings is, you know what, as a man is, so is his strength. In other words, you know, you want to do this you need to have a man do it don't send a boy to do a man's job is essentially what they're saying you know there's a very important thing in this as i consider this and it's simply this that as we are gifted to to ministry as we're gifted in different ways 
there are those gifts that we are having the Lord develop in us and mature us as we go along in life. But the thing is, there are times where we're not ready for certain ministries. We may have the gift of teaching, but you're not quite ready to, to teach in certain ways or do an expository teaching on the book of Leviticus, um, things like that. You're growing in that gift, growing in the things that we're doing. And we want to make sure that as we encourage people in ministry, that we want to make sure that they're growing and they're maturing in the things that God has called them to do, to not try to get them to do something before they're ready to do it. For example, as I was thinking about this, perhaps for, for my two sons, I would love to see my sons be involved in ministry. I would love to see them, you know, pastoring someday. That's my desire. Whether it's God's desire, I don't know. And what I want to be able to do is make sure that that's what God wants them to do, if he does, and I don't know. I mean, Luke's only 16. David's going to be 10 here in two days. But, but the thing is, I don't go to Luke and say, Luke, you know what? This would be really good for you if you taught the congregation on Sunday mornings. I think it'd be great for your ministry career and all of this. He's not ready for it. He's not mature enough for it, you see? I don't know if he has the gift of teaching. And I want to make sure that he has time to grow and time to mature and then unfold the things that are taking place in the way that God made him and, and, and called him to, to, to help shape him and mold him and mature him and disciple him. And that's why discipling is very, very important, isn't it? To give people opportunities to grow. I think discipling is extremely necessary in the body of Christ today. And for us to disciple the young people and get them maturing and growing and established and grounded in the things of God and in the Word of God, that then they can grow and mature into where they can minister in the things of God as, as they do grow up and as they mature. But here Gideon's son wasn't ready for this. And I can think, you know what, you, you do this because it'll benefit you and give you a good reputation, but if they're not ready for it, we don't want to put that responsibility on anybody, whether it's in ministry or whatever it might be, if you're running a business or in the workplace, whatever it is. So here was Gideon. He would rise, and, and, and he took care of these two kings, and so they have great victory. And so verse 22, And then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, but the Lord shall rule over you. I like that answer that Gideon gave to them. So he frees them from the hands of the Midianites. They come to him and said, Gideon, we want you to be the king. Not just raised up as a judge, but we want you to be a king and a perpetual kingship. That is, you and your sons, the lineage of, of Gideon. And Gideon very wisely answers, and he says, I don't want to rule over you, but let the Lord rule over you. And the reason it's a wise answer, because that was God's intention, wasn't it? That's why they were called Israel, which means governed by God. Now, at the end of the days of the judges, and again, judges takes place over about 350 years time span, but when we get to Samuel, they would come to Samuel, and they would say, Samuel, we want a king. We don't want you and your sons ruling over us. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And Samuel was heartbroken by that. And he went to the Lord. And the Lord said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Now, why did the Lord say that? Because he wanted to be their king. 
He had given them, as we've seen on Wednesday nights, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the religious laws. He had given them everything they needed to be, you know, as a nation, running and functioning in a way that was pleasing to God. The judges set up and, and guidelines given to them in the law uh, on how they make judgment, uh, how the people were to give and support the Levites, the religious laws, all these things that were given to them. God wanted to be their king. And then when the other nations saw how God was blessing them and the reality of, of God being the true and living God that was amongst them, then they hopefully would see that it would be a witness and a light to them. But what happened is the children of Israel keep going to those false gods, the gods of the Canaanites, worshiping them. They want to be like the other nations. Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So we'll give them a king. They'll have a king. But you need to tell them, Samuel, that there's going to be, you know, heavy taxes. The king's going to come and take your land. He's going to come and take your sons for war. All these things are going to take place. And that's exactly what would happen during the days of the kings. So here is Gideon saying, I don't want to rule over you. I want God to rule over you. Paul would say to the Corinthian church, we're not here to rule over you, but to be helpers of your joy. And as the pastor of this church, I don't want to rule over you. I do have responsibilities, I understand. Uh, there is the characteristics of, and the responsibilities of a shepherd and teaching and protecting and providing and all of this, but I don't want to rule over you. And sometimes people have the mindset that the pastor should rule over the people. I do not want to do that. I want the Lord to rule over you. I want the Lord to minister to you and to guide you and direct you. I want to be a helper of your joy and a proclaimer of truth. And as I show you God's word, if there needs to be a correction, I'll give you a correction. If there needs to be exhortation, I'll do that. An encouragement. But I'm always going to point you to God's word and to him, the one to rule over you. I want to be a helper of your joys and to be a servant and to serve in humility. So that's the place that I want to be in. So here is Gideon saying, we don't want to rule over you. So Gideon, you look at his life and you say, man, Gideon was one that was really used of the Lord. He was truly a mighty man of valor. He was one that, that really saw the hand of God working on his behalf. And as we look at his life, a life com committed to the Lord, what it seems like, and a life that um, was humbled before the Lord. It was a life that, that depended upon the Lord because Gideon knew in his own strength that he could not deliver the children of Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. And we learn much, and we have over the last couple of weeks, from the life of Gideon. Because I believe that the Lord says to you and to me that you're a mighty man, a mighty woman of valor. And he sees us in the potential of a life that is committed to him and submitted to him and humbled before him. A life that just says, Lord, you do what you want to do in my life. And the Lord is looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. The Lord desires to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And I think he looks at every single one of us and he says, you're a mighty man a mighty woman of valor. I want to use you in a very special way, in a very unique way. I want to use you for my purposes to bring glory and honor to me. And that's how Gideon was used. And so Gideon here doing very well, but we're going to see something here as we continue to read on. Gideon is not going to finish well in his life. You say, what do you mean? Let's continue to read. 
And in verse 24, Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each one of you give me earrings from his plunder. For they have golden earrings because they are Ishmaelites. And so they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw it into the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and pendants and purple robes were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's necks. In verse 27, Then Gideon made it into an ephod, and he set it up in a city, Oprah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. And thus Gideon was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for forty years in the days of Gideon. And then Jerubbabel, son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. In verse 30, Gideon had seventy sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son whose name was called Abimelech. You know, what we also saw in 1 Corinthians was that section in chapters 8 through 10 where Paul talks about our liberty and our freedom in Christ. And in our liberty and freedom that we have in Christ, what does it mean for you and for me? It means that we have freedom in Christ. We have great freedom in Christ. He has set us free from sin. He has set us free from the power of sin in our lives. We're free to serve Him and to walk with Him. And in our liberty, it doesn't mean that you stumble a weaker brother or sister. So Paul's talking about that to the Corinthian believers. And then in chapter 9, you recall that he said to them, and he says to us, the Lord, that you have a race to run. And don't you know that, that you have a race and you are to run that race with, with confidence. You are to run that race to win the prize because there's an imperishable crown that is waiting for you. So in the liberty that we have in Christ, it is to live in a way that we don't stumble the weaker brother or sister in the Lord, but also that we are not stumbling ourselves, that we're not weighed down, that we're not involved in sin. And so in chapter 10, he gives an example, didn't he? For those of you who were here on Sunday mornings, as we were going through that section of 1 Corinthians, he gives an example of the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering. Here were a group of people that were disqualified from entering into the promised land, because of their sin and disobedience, because of their unbelief. So we have a race that we are to run. Do we understand that? We all have a race to run. And he says, run to win the prize. And then the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, he says that, you know, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that, that we are to run our race with endurance that has been set before us, and put aside every weight and sin that ensnares us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You run your race with endurance. You run your race with endurance. You run to win the prize. And you put aside every weight and sin that may ensnare you. And the reason that I'm saying that one of the things we've learned a lot about Gideon that we can learn from what we can do in our own lives to become mighty men and women of, of, of the Lord, mighty men of valor in the things of God. But he didn't finish his race very well because we read in verse 27 that he set up that ephod. He says, I'm not going to rule over you, but this is one thing that I ask. I want you to give me some of that gold from the earrings and some, from of, some of the... the um, 
plunder that you got from the Midianites. And so they did that. He made an ephah, set it up in a city, and Israel played the harlot there, and it became a snare, a snare to Gideon into his house. Put aside every weight, every sin that may ensnare you, weigh you down. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Why did Gideon make this ephod? Perhaps, again, another suggestion is I think that even though he didn't want to rule over them, he's saying, I want to make this monument for myself there in ephod. I don't want the people to forget about me. And it ended up becoming a snare to him and to his family. People were coming and worshiping it. It became a, a thing of, that was an, uh, an idol. And it became a snare to Gideon. It became a snare to his household. And it became a snare to the whole nation as they played the harlot and they worshipped this thing. You know, that can be a problem with perhaps with guys that, and people that get into ministry. They want to set up a, a monument to themselves. And that can be a real danger that some people can get into. I don't want people to forget about me. You know, one of the things that, that I really feel strong about, if the Lord was to come back, Today, I don't want my fingerprints all over this place. I want this to be the work of the Lord, in other words. I want the Lord working in our midst. I want to be directed and guided by Him. And I want to honor Him with the things that we do here. But I don't want to ever set up a monument for myself. And whenever we set somebody up on a pedestal or make a monument or you know, exalt a person or something, there's a real problem that's there. And Gideon, he was doing well, but for some reason he thought, I'm going to set up this ephod, and they ended up playing the harlot and going right back into what got them into captivity. Run your race. And you know that all of you that run a race, it's not how you begin, it's how you finish. It's how you finish. And, you know, I've been running with, with the kids and some of the 5K races we ran on the 4th of July. And it's amazing when we run those 5K races or, you know, whatever it might be. And the gun goes off, and, man, everybody just flies by you. They just whoosh in a big sprint. But I noticed something, even for as slow as I am, that after a mile, after a mile and a half, after two miles, even though all these hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of people will pass me by, all of a sudden I'll start passing a few people up because they're walking. Or they're really slowing down. I just kind of go at my little slow pace, you know, just kind of just trucking along. But I start to pass people because they started out well, but they're not finishing well at all. They have to start walking. They have to start, you know, really slowing down. In our race, you know what? Put aside those things that it may ensnare you and your family. Don't set up things in your home or in your lives that's going to trip you up and weigh you down, cause you to be involved in sin and carnality. Deal with it. And encourage your kids and talk to them about running their race and about these things, these spiritual principles, because there's a prize that is waiting for us. And I'll tell you what, you won't regret it when you get to heaven. You won't regret it when you say in your life, I'm going to keep my eyes on the Lord, the author and finisher of our faith, and I'm going to put my hand to the plow, 
And Lord, I just want to live for you. And I don't want anything coming into my home, into my life. I don't want anything coming into the life of this church that's going to weigh us down and snare us, that's going to really affect us in a detrimental way. I want to finish strong. And I want us to continue on. I don't want us, I think Gideon got sloppy. He got very comfortable. He got famous. He set up this ephod. People are coming and hooray for Gideon. It's a monument to me. And he got sloppy and lazy spiritually. And he got complacent. I don't want to do that in my life. I, I hope you don't do that in your life. I don't want the life of this church to do that. I want us to keep pressing on and keep doing the things of the Lord and doing well in the things of the Lord. And also Gideon here, he ended up having many wives and sons and 70 sons in verse 30. He had a concubine who was in Shechem, bore him a son named Abimelech. Now we saw in the book of Deuteronomy, it was written that a king, and even though Gideon's not a king, he's a leader, he's a judge, that a king was not to what? Multiply horses. A king was not to multiply gold and silver. And the king was not to multiply wives. You can't go against God's word. And here he multiplies wives. He has a concubine. He has 70 sins. And you know what the result's going to be? It's going to bring a lot of hurt and it's going to bring a lot of tragedy to the nation and to his own family. You can't go against God's word. It was Solomon that he multiplied all three things. Gold, he multiplied horses, and he multiplied wives. And it ended up affecting him and the nation. He ended up turning to idol worship because those wives came from those nations that served idols. He even built temples like Tomolok on behalf of his wives and things like that. And it's very detrimental to the nation because after the reign of Solomon, they did fall into idol worship. The nation would split to the house of Israel and then the house of Judah. So you don't go against what God warns us about saying stay away from this, don't do these things because there's going to be consequences. And it's a loving father that warns us about not doing certain things. Stay away from these things. Stay away from sin. And Gideon, he ignored that. They were not to multiply the wives, and so he did. And so here in verse 32, Gideon, the son of Joash, died at the good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father and Oprah of the Abbey Ezrites. And so as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. And then Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke to them and with all the family the house of his mother's fathers, saying, Please speak in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Which is better for you, all that 70 of the sons of Jeroboam reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember that I'm your own flesh and bone. And his mother's brother spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. And their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He's our brother. So here's where the problem comes. Here is Abimelech. He's born to this concubine in Shechem. He goes to Shechem, and he says to the people there, Listen, you don't want Gideon's sons ruling over you as he's speaking to his mother's family and to the people of Shechem. He says, you want me to rule over you. 
So he's setting himself up as to be the ruler here of, of Shechem, to, to begin to rule over the people. And he's setting himself up as a king. So don't follow my brothers on my father's side. So the men of Shechem agreed to it. Now Shechem, you recall, was the place where the blessings and the cursings were pronounced there in Joshua chapter 8. And here, there's going to be some real cursing that's going to go on that takes place here. Some real problems, this verse 4. So they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth, in which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. And they went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers and the 70 sons of Jerubbaal in one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left because he hid himself. So all the men of Shechem gathered together at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king besides the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. So what we see here now is some guys give him some startup money. That he hires these reckless and worthless men and kills the son of Gideon here. All 70 of them, one ends up escaping. And in verse 5 it says, on one stone. What that means is they beheaded these guys. They cut their heads off with these stones. So these guys are worthless. They're reckless. Here is a nation. Here is a nation that should have rose up to deal with Abimelech in this, in this terrible thing that he's doing. But there's no one godly enough, no one raised up to deal with these ruthless and, and very terrible men that did this. And what has happened now is it is a ruthless society. It is a godless society. And that's what happens to a society that turns away from the Lord. Here was a nation that just saw the mighty hand of God bring them victory. And the Lord said that I'm going to do this so I get the glory. And it lasts for a little bit, but then they turn right back into their old ways of turning away from the Lord and serving those false gods. What happens to a people, what happens to a nation when they turn away from the Lord is there's terrible consequences. And it becomes a reckless and it becomes a a ruthless and a godless society. And I pray for our nation because, again, as I said, as I look at the book of Judges, the theme of the book of Judges is they did what was right in their own eyes. I see some of the similar trends that we see in our own nation, in our own society. And what I pray is, is that you and I, that we would continue to be light, that we would continue to be a witness that we would stand fast for the Lord and we, we would pray. There's still battle going on, folks. And the battle is through the truth of God's word, through God's love, and through prayer. For us to be praying for our leaders, for our nations, that there be a turning back to him. Otherwise, you have terrible consequences that ends up happening. So, Father, as we stop here at our time in our study, I pray that we would... Lord, be ones that we know that we're in a race that we are to run. And we learn so much from Gideon who was used of you and depended upon you. But we also see that at the end of his life that he got complacent. And he ended up doing things that became a snare to his family and to the nation. So, Father, I pray that tonight as we just continue to worship and spend a few minutes And just setting our hearts once again on you, that, Lord, that if there's anything that's in our lives or going on with our families, 
anything that's a snare that's weighing us down, anything that's, Lord, hindering us from running our race with endurance that has been set before us, that we would confess it, Lord. And, Lord, that we would just allow you to minister to us, Lord, your forgiveness, your compassion, your mercy, to strengthen us. That, Lord, that we would be ones that would say, Lord, we need you because we are weak. We are needy. Lord, I'm weak. I'm needy. Lord, I don't want the flesh, carnality, to dominate me. I don't want sin to be a part of my life. I know these things need to go, certain attitudes in my heart that need to go. You go to the Lord tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would touch your people's hearts. And Lord, that you would minister to them. And Father, I pray for us that, Lord, that we would always seek to keep our eyes focused on you. And knowing that as we do, making you the priority of our hearts and of our lives, that everything else will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, we lift up our nation as well, once again. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a nation, a nation that was founded upon godly principles, and, Lord, a nation that, that looked to you and recognized our need for you, that we've gotten away from that. And, Lord, we see in the book of Judges what happens when we begin to do what is right in our own eyes, not only in our lives individually, but a nation, a society, corporately. So we lift up our nation, that there would be a turning to you. Lord, that we would be light and salt and stand for righteousness. We pray for our leaders in our nation. Lord, that somehow their hearts would be turned to you. Lord, that they would look to you for guidance and direction, for wisdom. And Lord, we just commit our nation to you. And Lord, how we need you so desperately. Father, I pray that, Lord, in our lives, that we would stand strong for you. So, Father, bless this time as we just spend it with you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.